0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: you're listening to bulletproof radio with dave asprey today's cool fact of the day is that blood vessels built from your own cells might someday help you even if you're doing something unusual like dialysis Right now, they're running clinical trials on bioengineered blood vessels they install in the arm of dialysis patients that get successfully integrated into their circulatory system. That's kind of cool. You could get new blood vessels installed when yours start getting too old. Like, how awesome is that? What they did is they created a blood vessel by seeding a biodegradable polymer tube with vascular cells from dead people. In this case, I'd want to do it for my own cells, but hey, that's just me. And they put inside a bioreactor tank that provides nutrients and cells multiply, secrete proteins and form an intercellular network. In eight weeks, the polymer scaffolds broke down and what was left was donor cells. And they grew the vessel of only six millimeters across, put it in the patient and the patient's own cells moved into the tube and were off to the races. This has never been done before. Before they would do things like oh, we'll just pull this blood vessel from your leg because you probably don't need it that much. And we'll just put it in your heart because you need that more than your leg. It seems like a kind of a nasty trade-off, but compared to dying, it's a pretty good trade-off. So I, I love it when we're now looking at these incredible new abilities to, at a very slow pace, turn on that Wolverine-style uh, kind of healing. So eventually you'll just grow new blood vessels like that and uh, you know, you'll be able to have steel claws too one of these days, well, adamantium. But that's just coming. In the meantime, bioreactors, that's all legit. Um, this actually came out of North Carolina. It was published in Science Translational Medicine in March of 2019. That kind of stuff just gets me all excited about the future. Stuff that just seemed like science fiction a little while ago. Yeah, yeah, we just grew your new vessel in case you needed it. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade, You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRCLED, For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, since I'm a master of foreshadowing, you know that I'm probably going to talk about blood vessels with you today. And you might be saying to yourself, why do I care about blood vessels? Well, it turns out that one of the big four things that's likely to kill you is probably something having to do with your circulatory system, your cardiovascular system. And that's why today's guest is Dr. William Lee who's a really experienced internal medicine physician and a research scientist, something called a vascular biologist, who's been working on something called angiogenesis, that would be growing new blood vessels, for more than 20 years. And he's been on uh, Dr. Oz, Uh, he's an author, and a guy who's really looking at what you can do to take control of that one aspect, that what's going on with your blood. He wrote a new book that we're going to talk about today called Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. And he takes, like me, a systems-based approach to health and prevention and even reversing disease, diseases like cardiovascular things that aren't supposed to be reversible. So we're going to talk in practical terms about what you have to do in order to get your defense systems in order so you just don't have to grow new blood vessels in a bioreactor and stick them wherever your current ones fell apart. Uh, Dr. Lee, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on. And I really appreciate your setup on bioreactors because the body is
1: the best bioreactor we have. It's a a great way of looking at it, and it's completely true. Uh, We'll take anything that we stick in our mouth that can be digested and turn it into electrons or building blocks and poop or breathe the rest out. At least that's my model of it. That's pretty accurate? Pretty much. You know, we are
2: essentially... Our bodies are like a a universe that's, you know, a galaxy that's in formation all the time. Our trillions of cells are multiplying. They're actually keeping our organs in good shape. And, you know, most of us uh, are fortunate to be healthy and many of us are afraid to get sick. And so the traditional ways that doctors like me have been taught are to is to sort of wait until you get sick, diagnose disease and then write prescriptions To chase down the disease and see if you can cure it but there's really now a new approach really because the science has advanced to uh, help us get an entirely new uh, view of what health actually means and i I think this is where this idea of the body as a bioreactor um, comes back into play because our health is not simply the absence of disease like most people think our health is a result of our hardwired defense systems that protect us through a bioreactor from the day we're born until our very last breath. And guess what? Food can actually activate those health
1: defenses. What are they defending us from? I mean, is health defenses. Is, is this aging? Is this toxins? What what is whatever what's out there that's so scary? Yeah. Well think about think think
2: about like the moment we're born, it's like being a wind-up doll. We are released into a world that is designed to harm the body. You've got even, even without pollution and chemicals and secondhand smoke and all that kind of stuff. You got ultraviolet radiation that's beaming in from the from the sun uh, through the skies, you know, causing DNA damage in our skin. Uh, you know, you've got um, uh, uh, you've got radon coming up from beneath. So we're really assaulted from both the top, uh, top and below. And then now that we're in society, we're getting off gases from furniture and carpets and rugs. We're out there sitting in, in traffic with our windows down and breathing in exhaust. No matter where we go, basically life is pitted against our health. And so our bodies remarkably have evolved a series of kind of self-defense mechanisms. Think about like, you know, Aikido or Kung Fu kind of like wired into our bodies that are set uh, to really um, uh, neutralize attacks, uh, repair damage, and really try to regenerate and keep our health going at, at, at a high level. And that's, you know, and that's even without the things that we do to ourselves uh, not knowledgeably that actually can
1: take down our health. So pretty much everything out there wants to kill you and eat you. <laughs> if, <laughs> if we're not talking about entropy, uh, just the tendency towards randomness, uh, every life form on earth, bacteria, fungus, uh, higher life forms, plants, eventually, uh, the, the things that make us up, the carbon molecules and whatnot, uh, they will get recycled and eaten by something else. And it's your ability to resist that as long as you can that sort of determines the quality of your life as well as the length of it. uh, If you want to be dark about it, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly that. That's exactly the point. Is that the moment we are kind of delivered onto this planet, uh, you know, from our, our moms, our bodies are wound up like these toys, and basically they function to allow us to live as long as we possibly can. Defending our healthy organs and tissues, and keeping us, you know, ideally optimally functional. That's why, you know, when you get started, when we get started, you know, we're still developing and we're not quite optimally uh, optimized yet. So it's kind of like a butterfly, you know, coming out of a chrysalis. The so wings are still wet; need to dry up before we can fully flush ourselves out. And that's kind of like adolescence, young adulthood. Then. We wind up, you know, being these beautiful pictures of health. Most of us, some people do get sick, um, uh, but then most of us get to that middle ageish point where, you know, the the pluses and minuses of life start to take their toll on us and our defenses start to get overwhelmed. And so the question is, what can we do to better ourselves? And the conventional thinking out there is, you know, juicing, jogging, and yoga are probably good for us, and they are. But now we have really advanced knowledge. And, you know, I think this is uh, something that your listeners will love to hear about. Like, what do we know from the frontiers of science that give us that insight uh, onto how our body actually heals itself, repairs itself, keeps us going?
1: I'm glad you didn't write yet another book about juicing, yoga, and jogging uh, because it, it feels like everyone's been saying that for 30 years. It hasn't really worked that well. Uh, If you look at death rates from cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's or diabetes or anything else, in fact, it seems like sort of crappy advice because we aren't all getting healthier. Uh, What's missing?
2: Well, I can tell you that what's missing is uh, a more holistic approach that's informed by science. I think that the uh, confusing thing about foods and health that have, uh, I think, reigned supreme over the last decade, maybe two decades, is that. Everybody's thinking about the superfood or the super diet that's going to solve everything. And, you know, as a systems biologist um, myself, and, and I know I'm talking to somebody who thinks this way, we have to understand life's not simple. It's very complicated. Our body's not simple. It's very complicated. And one system works with the other either to help us or actually to take us down. And so, the, the, you know, the the reality about health defenses is that this is an intertwined system, biolo- of biological systems. They're hardwired inside us and they help our circulation, for example. That's the angiogenesis system. They help us regenerate from the inside out. That's our stem cell system. Our microbiome is happens to be the, an entire ecosystem inside our body that functions on our behalf until it's disturbed or perturbed. And then that system, which is thrown out of whack, needs to be put Back into balance, and then our DNA is another system that needs to protect itself against assault, or we wind up having mutations and diseases like cancer. And then finally, our immunity, which is another core a pillar of our health defenses. You know, every grandmother t- said that you know your immune system keeps you from getting sick. We know it's more powerful, much more powerful than that. That it is so hardwired to protect us; it can even protect us against cancer. Even when we have cancer, we need to keep that immunity fully functional. And so, you know, the 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 there's no superfoods, but really there's kind of a super body. And hacking into that, the systems that make that work well is what's going to give us the clues on how
1: we can use food in the proper way going into the future to live longer. Um, you know, I I like that perspective a lot. And you say something though in the first line of your book uh, that caught my attention. as one of the reasons I want to, to one interview you come from a a place of of learning and you know, you've, you've really spent 20 years on this and you say we are at a turning point in the fight against disease big words from a licensed medical professional who's been 20 years on the on the problem why is this a turning point versus last year or next year like what's what's so special what's happening
2: you know it it seems like every year somebody is talking about a groundbreaking game changing Uh, breakthrough in medicine and you know the media uh, um, does point out things that are really cool like the artificial blood vessel that you just described and there's so many other things i actually think that the turning point that's happening now is coming from a number of different angles first i think that as citizens of modern societies we realize that we just can't go along letting things happen to us we need to actually use the knowledge that's available and turn it in turn our lives into our own favor so that's kind of an empowerment that we didn't have before because the science now tells us what we can do to stimulate the healthy parts of our lives not just what we should stay away from so if i told you basically stick away stay away from the electric fence you'll get your whole life will be patterned on fear and distance if i told you look Reach for this or that because it can activate your health defenses. It gives you something positive to do, and really, the turning point comes from the positivity that we're able to um, uh, lean into health in a way that we haven't been before. Based on the sophistication of science that's actually coming, by the way, um, from the biopharmaceutical industry, biotech has delivered the billions of dollars been used, invested in biotech, has really given us the knowledge that it takes to. Actually, not use drugs. Ironically enough,
1: <laughs> so the the metabolic understanding that came about from drug research uh, will ultimately disrupt the drug companies that, themselves. That's
2: completely correct. And the other thing that's happening now that's tipping is the unsustainability of what we've always done, which is you know we're we're healthy, we don't need to worry about it until we get sick, and then somebody's going to be around to you know write a prescription or get you in a hospital or do a fancy procedure and throw you know a hugely expensive intervention at you. And yeah, listen, I'm a doctor that's had, I've been behind and involved with um, the successful development of 32 FDA approved game-changing medications for cancer, diabetes, complications, and even vision loss, things that we weren't able to do before we can do with medicines. But, and so, and I know how powerful these medicines can be to treat disease, even in some cases cure it, but hey, you know, it's a lot more powerful if you could prevent the disease in the first place. And I think that's where the tipping point comes, because when we think that we can prevent the disease or reverse the disease, we're suddenly in a completely different place that healthcare has been for 150 years.
1: So, so the big difference is that we have a sense of control that we have now that we didn't before. Informed control. And it it's interesting because the the definition of biohacking is you know, the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have full control of your own biology, uh, which includes health. But if your goal is, I just want to be healthy. Like, I, actually, I'd like to be immortal. Healthy is pretty good. It's table stakes, but I think maybe I could do better. And and so you can have control. Maybe you can get there, maybe not. You might die trying. It's all good. But I, I do feel like that's liberated a lot of people.
2: I, I, I totally agree. You know, I I think we're at a point this tipping point allows us to up our own game, right? So all of us who actually make an effort to be healthy, um, what's really cool is that now we actually can raise the bar even for ourselves, you know, for the, even for the motivated people, the knowledge that allows us to say, Hey, listen, you know, I've got, I don't have heart disease. I've got good circulation. Now we can say, how do we get better circulation? Or, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, growing my muscles. I'm working out. I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm, I'm body sculpted. The question is, okay, well, that's fine. So now let's supercharge what we're doing inside our bodies. Can we regenerate ourselves? Can we add stem cells, not by injecting ourselves, but by using our diet to control the biohack into our bodies to get our stem cells to work even better. All these things are actually
1: starting to come to light and to practical application. That makes me really excited, and one of the other things, I don't think I've ever talked about on the show, but you you said something earlier, you said, what we're doing now is is not sustainable. And uh, two things come to mind. Uh, One is, well, it was announced earlier today on the day we're recording this episode that the U.S. has the lowest birth rate in 32 years. And the birth rate in Japan's been plummeting forever, in fact, in every developed nation is coming down. I've been forecasting since my first book on fertility that was published in 2011 that we don't have a global population problem. Don't even worry about that. that that's a 50-year problem because infertility is climbing at such big rates. Even if you want to have kids, you can't. Uh, so like, we'll, we'll solve that one biologically. But aside from that, the, su- the sustainability of the current thing, okay, there's no young people around to take care of you when you're old. The amount of medical waste coming out of hospitals because of sterility requirements, oh my god, you think you're a good person because you recycle? If you really want to reduce your environmental impact, throw trash everywhere for your entire life and then die in a car accident instead of a hospital, and you'll still have less plastic burden on the planet. You agree with that statement? I totally agree,
2: and you know, the thing that is frightening is really how much medical waste. It's not just from the hospitals. It's actually even from your own medicine cabinet, right? Like people that toss out old pills or <clears throat> other you know kind of discard biohazard waste you know that gets tossed around most of our water supply is actually contaminated so here's another example yeah. of how our environment actually is set up and what we do in our environment is set up to actually um, force us to work harder to to keep our body's health defenses up you know um, you talk about uh, infertility you know there's birth control in drinking water just from the stuff that leeches out of you know, septic systems and stuff like that. So we've got drugs everywhere. You know, the the antidepressant, there's like Prozac in drinking water as well. So, you know, sort of like watch out people, the fancier we get, the more at risk we're get and we get. And that's why we really need to be able to raise our own bar, in some cases, just to get to the baseline of what we should be.
1: It's kind of funny, if I'm feeling sad, I just go to New York and drink some tap water and I feel much better. It's probably the Prozac, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Could be <laughs> now. Uh, in your book, uh, "Eat to Be Disease," you talk about six hundred studies or so, and you came up with a framework that I think listeners would would appreciate. Where you talk about five defense systems uh, that correspond to the sections in your book, and uh, let's just talk through those so that uh, when people are done listening to this, they feel like they got a little mini education in how to eat and what these defense systems are. Tell me about angiogenesis.
2: Yeah, so um, five defense systems really come out of this idea that when I started to think about uh, health versus instead of disease, and when I started to think about prevention versus intervention, started to think about food. And when it comes to food and health, here's what's really clear. It's not just about the food. It's about what how our body handles and responds to what we put inside it. And so I started to really start to delve into... Um, what it is that health is the result of. And I identify in my book five core health defense systems, of which angiogenesis is one of them. And I know we'll go through them. So I'll start with angiogenesis. So, angiogenesis is how the body grows blood vessels. Um, you know, you talked about the bioreactor. I'll tell you something even more mind blowing than that. Um, as adults, we have. 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels packed inside our bodies that twist and turn everywhere, delivering oxygen and the nutrients that we need to every single cell in the body. 60,000 miles. That is so extensive. that If you were to pull out all these vessels and line them up end to end, you would form a line that would encircle the earth twice. This is one of our body's health defense systems in order to keep everything fed and healthy, not overfed. So we don't want to actually overfeed systems that can actually provoke diseases like cancer. Uh, if those vessels are, um, if there's too much overage, you can actually uh, have bleeding and cause problems like blindness. Uh, uh, and if you have too many, too few blood vessels, you wind up having the opposite problem. You don't have enough, you know, grass sprouting in your lawn. You wind up having bare patches. And that, when that happens, you're not feeding your heart, your your brain. Um, your nerves for erectile function, you can wind up having all kinds of problems like that. So androgenesis defends us by feeding all of our cells. Too much or too few actually cause a problem. So we want to keep that, the body is hardwired to keep that circulation in perfect shape.
1: So we have these these tiny little vessels uh, in the body mm-hmm. uh, that are, are smaller in diameter than what a blood vessel is supposed to be able, or sorry, than what a blood uh, cell is supposed to be able to fit through, yet somehow mm-hmm. they do it. How often does the lining of the of super tiny um, vessels versus, say, big blood vessels, or arteries, how often does that lining turn over? Yeah, so, you know, vascular cells
2: line up the blood vessels. So they're kind of like the... They're kind of like the insulation, but on the inside of a blood vessel, those cells are pretty quiescent. So they um, tend not to replicate um, unless they're damaged or unless they need to grow. Um, The slowest replicating blood vessel in the body is actually in the retina, which is the blood vessels feeding the back of the eye. And in fact, they tend to turn over just twice in your entire lifetime. Average lifetime, 88 years old, um, uh, they only divide twice. But other blood vessels that need more turnover, like the blood vessels in your gut, for example, you know, that's continuously regenerated, re, um, uh, renewed. Um, those can turn over, you know, every couple of days. And so it depends on um, the location and how active the system actually needs to be um, in terms of the turnover of, of, of cells.
1: It's an interesting perspective. So I'm still seeing the world through young eyes, most likely, which, uh, which encourages me. I feel good about that. But is there something we can do to change the rate of angiogenesis? I mean, don't you want some more blood vessels to grow, not less?
2: Yeah, no, so it's a great question. So here's what it is with all of our health defense systems. We want just the right amount. Um, and we want just the right amount at the right time, in the right location. So more is not always more, right? So this is sort of like a typical attitude that sort of in a, in a in a time of abundance, you know, we tend to think that, more of something is going to make us richer, healthier, wiser, better. But in terms of blood vessels, you want just the right amount. Um, Too many blood vessels can't fit physically in 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 a certain space. So they kind of crowd and they wind up actually becoming, because they're kind of fragile, they can bleed and have a problem. So a great example is, you know, people who are in aging, you want, you know, when they have too many blood vessels in the back of the eye in an area called the macula, um, you get macular degeneration. Age-related macular degeneration is the most common cause of blindness over the age Which of six. Too many blood vessels. That's too many blood vessels. And what those when the, when too many blood vessels are packed into an area like underneath the carpet of the eye in the most sensitive part, and they are really fragile. Those that extensive overage of blood vessels tends to leak. and When they leak, think about you know um, uh, the plumbing leaking underneath a, a carpet in your bathroom you wind up soaking up that area and you wind up destroying that carpet. And that's that's what causes blindness mostly in, in elderly people. And so we now know through some big breakthroughs that have occurred out of my field of angiogenesis that, you know, if you can start uh, uh, cutting off the proteins that are actually fueling those blood vessels from growing underneath the eye, you can try to halt the process and in some cases about 30 percent of cases you can actually reverse vision loss to some extent so you know this is an example of good blood flow through most of our lives in an area of the eye that doesn't have a lot of turnover where when you have too many blood vessels actually it causes a huge problem that you know medicine medical doctors are trying to revert or reverse that disease by stopping that overage but if we started early You know, uh, my, my father has age related macular degeneration and he's getting injections to try to stop it. But you listen, you know, I, I, you know, I probably destined to follow his fate if I don't actually take control of my own blood vessels to try to keep those vessels in the right place in the right number at the right time for as long as I possibly can. And diet is a great way to do it.
1: Uh, My father also has uh, AMD and he uh, I, I, granted, I, I'm a weird biohacker and I've been talking with him for a while. Uh, he's been running a small micro TENS current uh, across his eyes around the acupuncture points. Interesting. actually reversed his his disease. I, it, it got smaller, which is cool. He also eats a diet that probably mirrors a lot of the compounds that we're gonna talk about in a bit here, uh, and it, it's not like you can do just one thing. Um, but I was blown away because you know you read about stuff, but healthy skepticism, but he he definitely saw this the and his doctor too, like, oh, it's much better than it was. What did you do? this but its you know ten minutes a day with your eyes closed. <laughs> so, that,
2: that that's pretty amazing, you know, I mean, I, I will say that um using energy for healing has now um, kind of moved beyond the woo-woo that used to be there. and you know, really serious um scientists, like I was at um, I heard. A Ted talk literally you know about using infrared light to be able to image and then and then be converted to destroy brain tumors for example this this is the kind of stuff that is you know I would say it's no longer science fiction it's moving into the realm of science fact so I you know that what you just described is super interesting I'm actually going to look into it myself
1: the interesting thing there is I have this book it was like $800 it was from the the Highest-ranking executive, probably president of the Karolinska Institute, which is where uh, my wife, Dr. Lana, went to school. Uh, And in 1984, he published this book saying everything that happens in the body is electrical. uh, But I'm publishing this on the the year or the day I'm retiring because I know that you'll probably want to take my license after I say this heretical stuff. But it was—I couldn't even understand half the book. I'm pretty good at reading medical literature. I mean, he went really deep on subcellular things. It it was a compelling, shockingly well-researched. Uh, heavy-duty medical tome uh, with this entirely uh, different way of thinking about it It wasn't a chemical problem it was always electrical and that's just open my mind something interesting is going on there we barely know anything about it but when you talk about it being a tipping point uh, I'm happy that you're open-minded about such things because it feels like there are some things we can do even for blood vessels uh, with infrared light Um, Have you ever played with things like ultraviolet blood irradiation or using lasers for either not just ablation, but to cause healing in veins and arteries? Is that real? You know, it's
2: something that I'm actually actively investigating now is really the power of energy. So um, a project that, you know, um, is not ready for prime time yet, but it's something that's actively being explored is how do you use light and then going to the other side of the wavelength? How do you use sound? you know, um, yeah. to actually influence cellular behavior. And it's real. I mean, it's there. The, the, the real question is, you know, um, how much more do we need to know about it to understand how to control it and so that we can use sort of the principles of biohacking in order to be able to, you know, get things moving in the direction that we want to. So I think, you know, it's, it's a very exciting future ahead, but it's really all the secrets are inside our body. And then we can figure out what to use from the outside to actually you know, kind of guide and manipulate that inside stuff.
1: Tell me about a couple of foods or supplements that are really good for having not too much and not too little angiogenesis, uh, stuff that people can read about in your new book.
2: Yeah, so um, a really good um, anti-angiogenic uh, food is a really a beverage, is, is green tea. Now everybody knows that green tea yeah. is good for you. It's an antioxidant and it does all kinds of other things. But, uh, you know, the work I've, the research I've done has actually shown um, through the same type of laboratory assays used for drug development that you can um, actually stop blood vessels, the same type of blood vessels that would grow into a cancer. So you can right size um, uh, the, the vascular system, the circulation by drinking green tea. The other thing that's really interesting about green tea, as you know, that, you know, one of the big problems is obesity. And a discovery that was made um, about 20 years ago is that tumors are abnormal cells that grow to a large size, and fat, adipose tissue, are normal cells that behave abnormally and grow to a large size. And guess what? To sustain the growth of both fat and tumors, which normally stay microscopic, um, you need new blood vessels to bring oxygen and nutrients. And so this whole idea of anti-angiogenic therapy which is you know delivering drugs to cut off the blood supply to tumors is now being explored for fat and a super interesting area is using anti-angiogenic foods or foods that contain anti-angiogenic activity like tea to actually treat both tumors or to actually prevent tumors but also to lower obesity and there's some interesting work done looking at um truncal obesity which is really the you know belly fat and finding that green tea um, can actually reduce that as well by starving those fat cells
1: I have a hard time looking at angiogenesis, this ability to grow new blood vessels. If you have cardiovascular disease, your body will grow new blood vessels around a blockage, right? Like it's necessary. If you're going to put on muscles, then you need to have some blood supply to the muscles in order to regenerate and, and to sort of grow and contract and shrink we, we definitely need this. And and I've, I've always been a little scared when someone says, oh, we're going to turn off angiogenesis because it might cause cancer. I'm like, well, what about the rest of the cells that needed blood vessels and repair <laughs> that weren't cancer cells? Are we going to starve them too? Yeah. So listen, you're, you're asking
2: uh, the fundamental question about angiogenesis that has dogged the field from the very beginning. If you're a cardiologist looking at it, you're saying, hey, we want blood vessels to grow into the starving heart. Um, oh, but we don't want cancer. And if you're an oncologist or tumor biologist, you're saying, "Hey, we don't. We want to get rid of those bad blood vessels. But hey, how do we actually not cause a problem in the heart and provoke a heart attack? Right? <clears throat> well, it turns out that mother nature, uh, or evolution, as the case may be, was a lot smarter than we are. The, the um, trick to angiogenesis that really answers the question you've asked is that our blood vessels. Um, are continuously supported by this ecosystem of angiogenesis stimulators to help grow blood vessels where they're needed and inhibitors that naturally stop them from growing where they're not needed. And so whenever you need it in a heart, or for example, a wound, if you cut yourself or scrape yourself or fall off your bike, you're gonna see, you know, after the scab forms, if your scab ever came off early, you can see this bright red, bubbling red stuff underneath the scab that's an eagle's eye view of angiogenesis but guess what when your wound heals over like those vessels by the way are, are bringing oxygen nutrients to heal that wound when your skin grows over that the inhibitors of angiogenesis that are natural in the skin take over and they shut it right back down to the normal levels and this is actually how you can actually cut off the blood supply to a tumor um, and and uh, uh and prevent a cancer adding more inhibitors um, uh, and overcoming the the effect of the local stimulators, but also for the heart, how you can grow them when you are needed, and when you have just the right amount, the inhibitors take over and just shut the whole system back down to baseline. It's a balance.
1: All right, that's uh, that's cool. Now I'm going to ask you a really controversial question. So mm-hmm. you talked about the oncology view, which yeah. you've worked with. You talk about the cardiovascular view, you know, the heart doctor mm-hmm. versus cancer doctor. What about oral nicotine? That was one milligram of oral nicotine. It promotes angiogenesis in what seems to be a really beneficial way at low doses and prevents Alzheimer's disease, according to uh, Dr. Nicotine from Vanderbilt University, who's been on the show. But my God, you say nicotine, people freak out. We're talking about 5% of what's in a cigarette there, and that's about all I'd recommend, but uh, I recommend for myself anyway. Uh, Nicotine, oral, not smoking, good, bad. Everyone knows smoking sucks it for everything, but Is there room for this as a drug for angiogenesis or anything else or not?
2: So here's the thing that we do know about nicotine. And again, I look at the clues uh, within the body. It turns out that our blood vessel cells have the receptor for nicotine. They've got a nicotinic acid receptor. And this has been both studied by people who look at lung cancer, who can tell you that if you have high levels of inhaled nicotine and there's a tumor growing, so we've got cancers growing in our body all the time the you know that is one of the triggers that can actually help um uh, pull the trigger on blood vessels growing to feed a lung cancer that's not good on the other hand that a cardiologist n-
1: nicotine just to be really carbon yeah. listening if you have cancer nicotine is the worst thing you could possibly do that i know of um other than just you know jump off a cliff or something is <laughs> it's really dangerous right
2: yeah that's absolutely okay. the case now i'll tell you what's other what's interesting is a cardiologist there's a, a cardiologist named John Cook at Stanford who um, was at Stanford when he discovered this. He discovered the nicotinic acid receptor on blood vessels feeding the heart. And so exactly to your point, there's been a lot of research looking at how do we actually kind of tickle that nicotinic acid receptor for the cardiac blood vessels in order to be able to actually feed the healthy blood vessels or or prompt them to actually do things that that, that receptor would normally do. So you know, it's, it's a very clever way of thinking about how do we um, hack into this um, body system and um, kind of um, tip off the vessels that are wanting to do good things um, to help support the healthy functions that we want and also to prevent that because that nicotinic acid receptor is also a target to be able to antagonize, you know, things that, that blood vessels might feed a cancer as well.
1: Well, that's uh, that's a very nuanced uh, view of it. And I what I took away from that, that I want everyone listening to hear. Don't smoke, it's nasty. And vaping is also inhaled nicotine and they put the same addictive stuff in that that isn't nicotine uh, that they also put in cigarettes. It's a bad habit to start. So I just wanna be like super clear. If you're young and you think vaping's cool, yeah, it's better than smoking, but seriously, it's not good. Uh, let's not say there isn't a role for nicotine, but you're probably using too much if you use it. So I don't wanna be on the record as telling people to go out and start vaping because that's bad news. All right, Uh, so we talked a lot about this blood vessel maintenance thing and green tea is a big recommendation there. Uh, I use it in some of the supplements I formulate and I drink green tea and when I'm making a health smoothie instead of my normal Bulletproof coffee, I will sometimes take two ounces of brewed black coffee throw in a whole bunch of horrible tasting herbs and two big scoops of matcha <laughs> <laughs> with the oil and everything, I'll blend it up. So of hold my nose and chug it and then I'll drink a cup of Bulletproof afterwards to get that horrible taste out of my mouth uh, and for pleasure. But yeah, there's the green tea, absolutely. I, I love that recommendation. And you talk you know, about the hundreds of studies in the book. Um, next up, talk to me about regeneration, stem cells.
2: Yeah, so I'm sure when you are growing up just like me You know, our grade school teachers told us that salamanders regenerate starfish regenerate people don't regenerate well you know the science now tells us that it's not true in fact we're continuously regenerating at um, at pr- a pretty slow rate in most cases but in some cases like our gut or even our hair our skin we're regenerating at a pretty furious pace and some organs that we didn't think could regenerate actually do regenerate I mean, we know the liver regenerates you can cut off two thirds of your liver and then the rest of it will grow right back as long as the rest of your body is healthy. And even the lungs, by the way, you know, if you lop off the top of your lung, the apical part of your lung, the cap of the lung at the very tip, kind of like near where your uh, collarbone is, um, that part will also grow back. And so, you know, this is the cool thing about science is that as we continue to kind of forge our way forward, we're challenging some of these old notions. For example, the body doesn't regenerate. It does. So where do stem cells live? Well, they live everywhere. Where do they? In salamanders.
1: Live? Oh,
2: sorry. <laughs> well, you know, even in salamanders. So the, the stem cells live everywhere. Yeah. And if you, um, uh, and, and they come from the inside out in humans. Anyway, they love to live in our bone marrow. So if you've ever, you know, seen a bone, um, kind of a cross section or a bone cut in half, there's the on, bone...
1: on, on, on uh, Facebook, there's actually a picture of my bone marrow. I had it taken no out stem cells. All so, right. Yeah. That's it's, cool. It's cool. It looks just like butter. Almost.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, so, um, <laughs> you know, you've got the, the hard core of the bone on the outside and you've got this like open, uh, tube, but like open cavity on the inside, um, that's filled with, you know, buttery like stuff. It's, a lot of cells and most of those cells are stem cells and most of those stem cells by the way we were all originally made of stem cells when we were in our womb when we were in the womb developing we were all made out of stem cells it's only later that those stem cells wound up differentiating or maturing into the different organs a finger or toe a heart a brain a limb and so what's interesting that we now know is that our body retains the ability to keep these stem cells around to regenerate when we need to, um, uh, behind the scenes in ways that we didn't even know. But you can actually prompt and stimulate this regeneration. So people who, you know, um, uh, and I'm, by the way, I've been one of the people in the early days working on stem cell therapy, you know, you take out um, cells from your bone marrow, or you can mobilize them in your bloodstream, you remove them, you um, kind of concentrate them or help them grow by um, giving them some natural fertilizer, usually proteins that stimulate their robustness and their numbers. And then you can, you know, they're, they're being used to inject back into different tissues, whether it's a joint, whether it's a, um, a muscle. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, there are s- clinical trials now that are quite amazing to deliver stem cells um, to the heart. Um, I've also heard of a clinical trial um, giving stem cells to young kids with autism. And the preliminary mm-hmm. findings is that you're actually able to um, get these early undifferentiated cells that could be anything and they kind of reboot the brain to reverse even autism
1: it, it there's so much legitimacy there I, I've done several episodes on it and I've probably had the most stem cells introduced in my body in a single instance of anyone on the planet I, I did a four hour procedure with three doctors where they took a whole bunch of stem cells, half a liter of bone marrow and fat derived and put them in every joint uh, in my body uh, and did them. Uh, with a, uh, what do they call it, a cannula inside the spine along the spinal sheath and into the cerebral spinal fluid. Uh, I've had V-cells pulled out of my blood uh, and activated, which, you know, are pluripotent and put back in. And I got to tell you, there's some stuff that works there. Uh, Another family member went in for just a fat, you know, a very basic procedure intravenously, not planning to treat the valve defect uh, or damage that was going to necessitate surgery, he was just doing it for wellness. And when he went in for the scan before the surgery, they said, uh, "Your problem's gone." What happened? And he said, "I think it was the stem cells." I said, "Nah, it wasn't the stem cells." He said, "Okay, it wasn't. It was a miracle. You know, it was a unicorn that did it. What, whatever it is, I, there's something going on. I'm younger. I'm more resilient. Like, like on all sorts of different ways. I sleep like I I would have when I was 20 if I knew how to sleep when I was 20. So I." I'm with you there, but most people, there's still, is a $5,000 and up procedure. What do people do in your book with food or with lifestyle to get more stem cells without having to do that crazy stuff I just did? That was at the Docera Medical Clinic in, in Park City where I did it, but um, actually some of that, the other stuff was uh, at BioReset. But where, like, where do I go on my plate to get even 5% of those benefits for, for no additional money? Well, listen, th- this, is,
2: this is the remarkable thing. Um, until recently, we were always focused on, uh, stem cells that we were removed from our body inject back in. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear more about your experiences because it's fascinating that you did this and it's really amazing to think about what the, um, positive effects, uh, might be in terms of rebooting your system. But I can tell you the other thing that's really amazing is that, um, uh, we're using the same systems that. Um, stem cell therapy developers have been using to test the process the proof of concept for years and now we're actually studying the impact of food and diet so for example yeah. they probably dave um, um, measured your baseline stem cells somewhere just to kind of get an idea of how many were around mm-hmm. and then you know after they um, removed your stem cells they are able to count them and you know this is one way to monitor the number of stem cells in your bloodstream. So this is classic kind of regenerative medicine therapy stuff that biotech companies are doing. What's really amazing is now um, dietary interventions are being uh, explored to see what actually happens. And the most surprising thing um, that I found was that foods can actually do ma- much of the same things as stem cells do. Um, and a great example is chocolate, specifically dark chocolate, specifically oh, cacao. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the study was done at UCSF, a you know, very credible medical center, looking at, you know, older men who had cardiovascular disease. So these are people who we know have kind of crappy worn out blood blood vessels. They 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 have the problem and they they need to reverse it, they need to improve their blood flow. And there was a um, an intervention study where they um, studied men, these men over 30 days. They were they drew their blood at the very beginning on day 0, counted their stem cells. Um Just to figure out how many were floating around. Usually men with cardiovascular disease have smaller numbers of stem cells. We know, in fact, that the fewer that you have, the more likely you're going to wind up having a fatal cardiovascular event a year later um, as you get older. And then they measured and then they gave them an intervention. The intervention is um, hot cocoa. In this case... You know, hot chocolate made with really dark, high flavanol chocolate, seventy um, percent uh, or more, and then they drank this just twice a day. Um, so, two eight-ounce cups of hot chocolate twice a day, well, probably with sugar in it too.
1: Which well, it's not good for stuff yeah, stuff. Well, but it's okay. Well, it still worked, right?
2: Yeah, and in this case, you know, I think the emphasis was on on spiking the high flavanol yeah. um, uh, chocolate, and and hopefully, you know, I mean, listen, I. I don't know if you ever had like really, really dark chocolate,
1: but you can actually put other things into the chocolate that that's not sugar and actually make it palatable. But um, we we make a Bulletproof has a 78% dark, you know, single estate, high origin with a little bit of uh, brain octane in it, uh, as well as zero sugar. We use a a proprietary xylitol process. It actually tastes like chocolate people would want to eat. Most zero sugar chocolates kind of crystalline weird, Uh, but it's, it, it's powerful, but even Eminem Mars makes a supplement, which is the flavonoids from Cocoa, uh, which has really good clinical studies behind it. You got to take four fat pills a day. And I kind of like to eat my chocolate, uh, but it, it seems like there's great evidence here. So you're saying to improve that stem cell. A function there you might want to look at eating some chocolate right dark chocolate uh, Specifically okay. and what they found in this research is that doubled the
2: number of stem cells in your circulation in a single individual So basically over time, you know, wherever you started day zero You had up to a doubling of the number of stem cells. So then the question is like who cares, right? Um, the skeptical say well, so that's fine. You get more cells in your bloodstream. Well, then they did this um, test a classic medical test called flow-mediated dilation. I don't know if you know about this, but basically it's the equivalent of putting a blood pressure cuff on your arm and pumping it up. And so you're cutting off, you're, you're squeezing the blood flow down and you want to see how resilient your blood vessels are. That's what stem cells do. They make your vessels more resilient. They make your body more resilient. And then they let go the, the, the blood pressure cuff and they just measure how fast the blood jets back into the bottom, the lower part of the rest of your arm. And people who ate these, uh, high flavanol chocolate had a, who had a doubling of stem cells also had a doubling of their resiliency of blood flow in their arms as well with this flow media dilation. So that's pretty much a proof of concept. Um, and that's quite remarkable that the stem cells were the um, response to
1: eating chocolate. Before we go into the next one of these five defenses uh, from your book, I want to ask about hypoxia, and in the research for my anti-aging book that's that's coming out here pretty soon, uh, it turns out the stem cell niches in the body where they're created the most have very low oxygen levels mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the body, and when we culture stem cells, we do it under low oxygen environments, because having the normal amount of oxygen in the blood actually inhibits stem cell growth. Do you think there's any uh, validity to some of these breathing exercises that introduce brief hypoxia, or I have a piece of gear from uh, Upgrade Labs. You know, it's a hundred thousand dollar plus thing that intermittently in, induces hypoxia by by changing uh, the the air pressure, like the essentially takes you to the top of Everest and back down on a you know, twenty second basis. But they have studies that show, oh, stem cells increase as a result. Should we all be holding our breath every now and then to increase our stem cells, or is the jury still out well,
2: on Well, you know, I, I think that the jury may be out on the actual breath-holding part, but I'll tell you some research that actually supports exactly what you're saying. So, um, you know, if you are a deep sea diver and you wind up actually um, coming up too quickly to the surface, you'll get decompression sickness, the bends, and they stick you into a hyperbaric chamber, right? So it was developed by the Navy in the old days to really try to um, reset and change the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide in your um, bloodstream. Long story short is that these hyperbaric chambers can exist that you can turn up or turn down the level of oxygen so people going into hyperbaric chambers like i i read that michael jackson actually slept in a hyperbaric chamber um, if
1: if we were broadcasting video do you see that back there oh my that's God. my hyperbaric chamber i just cool. turned my camera so I,
2: that, that's amazing you have one so let me let me <laughs> tell you what the research has been done so people who have terrible wounds that are not healing chronic wounds i mean this yeah. could be from a burn it could be from Cardiovascular disease, really ischemic, or it could be from diabetes. Just post surgery, right? Or post surgery, people have trouble healing for whatever reason. We can actually stick them into a hyperbaric chamber. It's called HBO therapy, hyperbaric therapy. And and you know, it used to be thought that what we're doing by increasing the oxygen level in the HBO uh, chamber, we're giving just giving a lot of oxygen back to you, right? So. And yeah, your body is actually helpful. So you got to do repeat dives, what they call, you know, putting in the chamber with high oxygen. um, And then people get better. Their wounds heal. They feel better, et cetera, et cetera. But what the research is now showing is something that's totally counterintuitive. I know you're going to appreciate this. That the high levels of oxygen are important, but in fact, it's the period between dives that actually is a relative hypoxia. So you go into the chamber. The chamber makes your body feel like it's, Um, uh, it wants to crave that high oxygen level. It loves it, okay? But then what happens is that when you come out of the chamber, back to normal, like, sea level, your body then suddenly goes, oh my God, I'm hypoxic compared to what I was doing in the chamber. In that hypoxic state, you're turning on all kinds of signals. Um, And so then you get back in the chamber, goes back up, resets your body, and you come back out. It actually gives you relative hypoxia. So what's interesting is that the time in the chamber is good for you for that period, but the time outside of that chamber's um. Also beneficial from a from a stem cell perspective.
1: Uh, that is, uh, it's blowing my mind. Uh, another piece of tech that I use uh, at labs and just here, it's downstairs. It, it's called intermittent hypoxic training, mm-hmm. and you're actually on a bicycle breathing air that's had the oxygen scrubbed out until you drop your blood oxygen levels down to about eighty-seven. Then you breathe one hundred percent pure oxygen, so you're you're getting a wave of strong oxygen followed by hypoxic, followed by strong oxygen, and it profoundly improves mitochondrial function. But there's something called uh, HIF, a hypoxia inducible factor, that seems to be a magic thing in the body, maybe as important as heat shock protein from saunas. And I think the science is just coming out on that, but as someone who studies angiogenesis, I imagine you've probably come across this in your uh, in your research. I mean, is there any kind of food for, for that, other than chocolate? The research in angiogenesis has um, really given us some
2: amazing information about this hypoxia inducible factor alpha or hif1 alpha and it's really a powerful signal for angiogenesis or blood vessel growth because when your organs are starved or need more oxygen hif is like sent out like a distress call to you know get something to happen to bring better blood flow so hif is released like a distress it activates the blood vessel cells that are normally kind of quiet around it And they kind of start to wake up and jump into action. And one of the things they say is that, hey, let's start dividing and let's start um, dissolving holes in the blood vessel walls nearby. And let's start sending out the troops and they'll start sprouting blood vessels towards the source of the HIF. And so what's really interesting is that um, HIF is not only an important way to get blood vessels to grow towards the tissues that need them, we also know that HIF is also one of those tricky signals that cancer cells have figured out how to hijack, um, it's like kind of getting a terrorist into an air, into a, uh, airplane cockpit, and they can take care, taking those same controls, and tumors can actually also use HIF selfishly to grow blood vessels towards themselves.
1: They they create something called pseudo hypoxia, which oftentimes creates those muscle knots when you get that localized inflammation. Exactly. Right? But they're using that to to tell the body, oh, if there's no oxygen here, I guess you should send more blood vessels, and then they're like, ha ha, I got that blood. Exactly. Uh, good way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, the, uh, the, the non-medical degree, uh, way of looking at HIF in case any of you non-doctors listening, I'm sure there's three of you. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I will do it. All right. I'm, um, I'm fascinated by all this stuff and you're encouraging me to, uh, even though we don't have studies yet uh, to hold my breath more often, uh, but not, not to be in hypoxia all the time, maybe tons of oxygen sometimes and no oxygen. Well, time. well, I'll tell you another good, um, dimension of breath holding. Is
2: that you know you're you're actually uh, inviting your lungs to absorb all the oxygen you possibly can, so you 're getting a more efficient extraction you 're really kind of figuring out how to get all that you know, basically in your lungs your blood cells that are loaded with oxygen and ready to absorb carbon dioxide as an exchange. You know, most people take shallow breaths. You barely give your chance to your, your your a chance to your blood cells to do that exchange, and so your lung kind of is always kind of half working. Um, uh, it's kind of like a stretching exercise here. When you hold your breath, you're forcing your lung to like kind of um, do what it all it can do. So it really keeps it, it keeps your lungs in good shape. So that's one way to actually keep your metabolic extraction of oxygen and your metabolic absorption of carbon dioxide really um, uh, optimized. So that's one good reason to be doing what you're doing.
1: Okay, that's uh, that's getting me to, uh, to continue on my practice, we'll put it that way. All right, next up, another thing in your book. Uh, you talk about the immune system and something called innate immunity and controlling inflammation. And, and long-term listeners understand that inflammation is at the root of almost everything bad that happens, those four big things that'll kill you we talked about earlier on and uh, inflammation is, is underlies them all. What is the role of innate immunity in your book at controlling inflammation? And what do we eat or do so our innate immune systems work well? Right. So, inflammation
2: is in the public's mind a bad thing. And, you know, and in fact, too much inflammation, every chronic disease that's out there is associated with inflammation, whether you're talking about obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's, you name it, you know, you've got inflammation. So, how do you think about inflammation uh, beyond a term? Uh, Think about it as um, uh, uh, healthy tissues and organs that are in distress, and your body's response is to try to um, help help clean it up and instead the cells that come in actually um, set things on fire. And so um, one of the problems is that uh, inflammation is like your own body, your own immune system, going in there and pouring gasoline around a place and like setting the whole house on fire. That's really chronic inflammation and it's, it's associated with every chronic disease. But I do want to actually give you some counterintuitive way of thinking about inflammation, which is why it occurs in the first place. Our body is kind of hardwired, again, to protect itself. And uh, one of the things, if you cut yourself, if you have an injury, if you have a wound, one of the things that um, the body is expecting is that you're going to get some debris or bacteria contamination in. So, you know, um, uh, a slip, uh, slip on a hill when you're uh, doing a hike and you're going to, scrape yourself and maybe have a little bleeding and some dirt gets on there, some bacteria are going to get in there. So the body's hardwired defense system, the innate immunity, sends out immune cells to really create a little bit of inflammation to kill those bacteria. And then it's supposed to go away. What happens in the disease state is that it doesn't go away. It just keeps on getting there and it doesn't go away. And it keeps. And that's when they start, it's, it's kind of like a frat party where people get drunk and start dowsing the whole place with with gasoline and setting things on fire. So let me tell you one of the things that actually is very important for downturning um, chronic inflammation, which you can see in autoimmune diseases. For example, that's a great example where you wind up having super inflammation, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. There's a whole family of these like really, really devastating diseases is you can turn down or calm inflammation Um, using things like vitamin C. So foods that contain vitamin C have been studied in Japan in the Miyagi Prefecture. They took a look at women who had lupus and they wanted to figure out like, okay, if the women actually are, um, those who are actually having more lupus flares versus women that have less lupus, they actually have a lupus center there where it's kind of like a hive of women that are getting medical care all with lupus. And they found the ones who actually had fewer flares of lupus and less inflammation in their bodies are the ones who ate foods containing more and more vitamin C. And so this is where it kind of gets tricky, right? So you could take vitamin C as a supplement, and that's, you know, you get pure vitamin C. You can get vitamin C from a lot of citrus fruits, but then you got to be careful of the source of the citrus and what part you're eating and how it's, you know, being uh, how you're getting it into your system. Um, but that vitamin C is one of the, you know, really powerful anti-inflammatory foods that you can actually have. Another kind of approach to lowering inflammation is really the judicious intake of the Mediterranean diet. So there's food patterns that are helpful as well. But in this case, it's not more is more. It's really kind of just having a generally healthier diet and trying to stay away from pro-inflammatory foods um, as being very important.
1: So avoiding the bad is more important than eating perfectly.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think listen when you're when you've got uh, a chronic inflammatory condition. Uh, the inflammation is, a, is really kind of a side effect of the underlying problem itself, right? So what you want to do is to really try to stay away from things that you know will exacerbate it.
1: If you had a choice between eating a plate full of French fries made in the worst quality oil that's been used for a while in a fryer, some nice poly and saturated omega-6s, or smoking one organic cigarette, which would you do?
2: Wow, that's like uh, you know. Would you rather die in a volcano or be eaten by sharks? Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I you know honestly, um, I would say it, it. If you're asking me personally, yeah. I would say because I know that I eat foods that boost my health defense systems, and I happen to actually have done a ton of work on tumor biology. I would be more fearful of the cigarette honestly, because I know that like a, you know, one puff of tobacco, um, one, one pack of cigarette smoke can take, you know, like a decade for your lung to actually regenerate itself enough to overcome the harm for that. And, you know, honestly, everybody every now and then eats something crappy and it doesn't have to be French fries fi- fried in bad stuff. It could be a lot of different things of junk foods that are out there. So I would say, I would, you know, here's how I think about it, Dave. What am I more likely to recover from and not succumb to, right? So you're worried
1: about addiction there. Okay. (laughs) yeah. in in that case, uh, that that makes sense. I've asked a few other experts in functional nutrition and more often than not, uh, they'll actually say this sounds ridiculous, but the cigarette's going to create inflammation for eight hours. And that big plate of fried stuff is a good 24 to 48 hours of inflammation. Um, but if you look at it from a lung biology versus overall systems inflammation, I, I mean, either answer is true that they're, they're both pretty poor choices.
2: <laughs> well, and, and, well, and not only that, but you can then, after your plate of fries, you can then embark on a course of, and if mostly what you're eating are anti-inflammatory foods, you know, you're kind of resetting and trying to rebalance yourself. Whereas once you've actually inhaled that cigarette, I mean, you're really, there's, there's really no going back until that lung lining is turned over.
1: Yeah, you can probably inhale some glutathione and whatever yeah. else, but yeah, they're, they're both pretty poor and you might be able to you know, drink a, a few swigs of fish oil and take some lipid antioxidants and go for it. But the bottom line is, is if you want to live a long time and feel really good, really doing either one of those just once a week on your special day is probably not a good strategy. And, and Well, you know, you're bringing up something
2: really interesting, which is, you know, you, you pitched this to me as the volcano or the shark. But, you know, there's a hell of a lot of people out there that are actually eating fries and smoking a cigarette every day. And it's, well, not it's, their, it's basically you know that
1: they're they've got one leg in the volcano, another leg in, in the shark water. Going, <laughs> look, at, look at me. Look at me.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to put it.
1: Uh, so uh, in your book, you, you teach people not to do that for sure. And, and this idea of innate immunity is important. Is there anything you recommend in your book around uh, food besides you know, vitamin C and flavonoids uh, that might be beneficial for reducing plaques or reducing that, that outcome of innate
2: immunity? So, uh, you know, I'm a systems biology thinker. So, and I, I work in this area uh, on the research level. So, you know, you talk about amyloid, which most people associate with Alzheimer's disease, right? Yeah. So in the Alzheimer's brain, you wind up having these like god awful plaques that kind of gum up your brain, and um, people with have Alzheimer's have a lot of it, and it's very pro-inflammatory, as you point out. Well, um, uh, in 2003, I published a, a, a kind of a thought-leading article in the Lancet, which is the British, you know, famous British, mm-hmm. British medical journal, pointing out that angiogenesis and inflammation is linked to the amyloid plaque in the Alzheimer's brain. And so here's how you know inflammation and angiogenesis and you know this kind of gumming up our systems biology uh, problems that actually work together. Now, you would say, well, how does that make sense? Like in Alzheimer's, you don't get you don't have good circulation; you've got bad circulation. Well, right. Turns out that in we we know that the Alzheimer's brains tends to be hypoxic. We know that this inflammation that is drawn by this kind of in, pseudo injury. Injury in the brain, and we don't know everything about Alzheimer's, this is what we do know. We know that hypoxia will will attract angiogenesis, like it'll grow blood vessels to try to restore healing. But guess what? For reasons we don't really understand, in the Alzheimer's brain, those angiogenic blood vessels form, but they don't actually deliver oxygen or nutrients. In fact, what they do, unfortunately, is the endothelial cells, those vascular cells that are forming in the blood vessels in the Alzheimer's brain... They deliver the precursor to the amyloid plaque. And in right. fact, what I pointed out in my article is that if you look, go back to the 1904 original article by Dr. Alois Alzheimer, which is written in German. So, you know, you got to use Google Translate to kind of get this. You'll find out that the man himself, Dr. Alzheimer, noticed that there was abnormal angiogenesis and inflammation next to the plaques. In the woman whose brain he first observed this in. Wow. Right? So nothing nothing good exists alone. And at the same point, nothing bad exists alone. And this is why systems biology that you, you know, like you're all over, is really so important to think about.
1: Uh, what a what a fantastic reverence. I had no idea about that, but it it makes so much sense. So keeping that blood vessel or the the blood vessel lining and the blood vessels themselves healthy is part of avoiding Alzheimer's and all the other plaques too. But you you talk about people living a long time, which is awesome. Because my next question for you is: Okay, you know more than the average uh, the average person about death uh, because well, you're a doctor and you have a license to kill, uh, and uh, uh, and you've been studying this. I mean, at at a level beyond most humans. How long are you going to live? Well,
2: this is a great question. I you know how um how long am I going to live is. Partly dependent on genetics. Um, yeah. And I can tell you, um, just I'll give you some facts. My great uncle lived to 104, independent, um, very healthy until did the he very end. He did not smoke. Okay. Uh, you know, he may have smoked actually when he was much, much, much younger, but he de- definitely didn't smoke um, uh, 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 later in his life. I, I know that for a fact. I'll tell you what he did do every day. He lived uh, in outside of um, Shanghai. In a little village um, at the base of a mountain that grows tea. Oh, nice! And he <laughs> hiked, so he was physically active every day. He'd get up at four in the morning. He would hike up this little stone path up to a tea garden, and he would sit there and watch the sunrise drinking tea. And he probably had, I don't know, ten cups of tea a day—green tea, fresh, oh, so organic.
1: Circadian biology plus green tea—that's a powerful thing.
2: You got it, and he ate a mostly uh, plant-based diet. A lot of, ate a lot of you know um, good stuff from Asia. So, 104 is your floor. Where are you going to end up? <laughs> well, if we can actually properly hack into our stem cells, our circulation, yeah. our microbiome. And by the way, you know, I think that one of the things that I worry the most about, I think in health in general, um, is how we can right size our microbiome. Because that 39 trillion bacteria that live inside us communicate to our immune system, which we know is critical for inflammation tipped in a wrong way, our um, bacteria in our body actually will make us um, more likely to be pro-inflammatory and lower our immunity against diseases like cancer. And then on the other hand, um, uh, we we barely know anything about our our microbiome. And we know that there are just about as many bugs in our body as our human cells, maybe a few more, but there's 20 times more bacterial DNA that's in there and we don't understand, you know, like think about all how the environment and toxins that can influence that. So I worry about that because if we can really hack into our microbiome and we know foods, for example, like that are fermented, like kimchi and sauerkraut um, actually can be very helpful for preventing uh, or introducing diversity. I think that's one area that I, you know, uh, for everybody, myself included, that we can work a little harder on, like the bar. We need to raise a bar in our microbiome where our knowledge is still fairly elementary compared to some other areas that we've talked about today, but that's something that you know we should be doing more of, like um, you know yogurt, um, kimchi, sauerkraut, figuring out how to actually leverage natural bacteria, prebiotic foods, fibers from plants. That's probably something that will help us live longer in a ways that we have not yet predicted.
1: All right, we're in super alignment there. I, I'm an advisor, and investor in a company called Viome that's really helping to crack the code on the activity of what's in the gut, mm. and I've, I've managed to take my gut species from 48 to 196 by changing some of the things. Wow! Uh, that I do in my uh, uh, in my diet. One of the new supplements are you know, uh, prebiotics uh, that we're coming out with at Bulletproof. I've been testing it for a while and saying, "All right, I think we got there," because uh, I mean, I poop, I poop like a superhero. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, um, I'll tell you how powerful we know the microbiome can be. A couple of years ago, um, there was a ca- cancer conference that I helped to convene uh, in Paris. It was called Rethinking Cancer. And the premise was oh, yeah. very simple. What happens if you have a, a state-of-the-art cancer research conference, but you remove any mention of chemotherapy and surgery and radiation, um, and you, but you still have the top people there, what topics do you have in your agenda? Well, you have diet, you've got microbiome, you've got inflammation, you've got sleep, you've got all kinds of the important things that people actually contend with that the medical community generally ignores. One area that we did talk about is sort of the intersection of the you know how the immune system works, because we know that immunotherapy um, can be a life-saving game changer um, in people who are um, given new treatments for cancer that don't kill cancer cells, but really rip off the camouflage that cancer cells use to hide from your immune system because your immune system is always conducting surveillance and they're kind of like our strike force if there's a cancer in there normally. Uh, But cancers do grow in people, and so now immune therapies um, help the immune system to go after um, the cancers. However, um, some people don't respond. In fact, really, most people don't respond. Only about 20% of the people have a good response, a curative response to immune therapy, maybe even less than 20%, and we don't know why. Um, well, at this, at this meeting, there was this embargoed presentation because it was about to be presented in, published in the journal Science, um, which you cited earlier. And, um, uh, and it turns out that they, they looked at 200 um, patients with various cancers that were treated with immune therapy and they divided them into the people who responded well to immune therapy, meaning their cancers got smaller and some of them got cured. Versus people that actually didn't respond, meaning that the drug didn't work, the cancer didn't respond, the immune system was kind of a dud in that case, and they didn't do well, and most of them died. So live, you know, life, death, respond, non-responder, we don't know the difference. Well, they, they hacked into the stool and found that one of the big differences, maybe one of the only differences, was whether or not there was one bacteria that stood out as being present in the responders and absent in the non-responders, that's like a profound thing that one bacteria could actually be kind of a not a smoking gun, but in this case, a, kind of like a brilliant ray of light. You need this bacteria. It's called Acromansia mucinophila. It's a bacteria that was only discovered in the 1990s, so it's not you know like um, you know the the old microbiologists going back into the 1800s didn't know about this. Um, this is called Acromansia. It grows in the gut. It loves to live in the mucus lining that we naturally have in our gut. And by the way, it is easily killed by antibiotics, okay? Cancer patients are getting antibiotics all the time. Um, and, there, and you cannot eat a probiotic that will grow this bacteria back right now. There's no acromancy probiotic. The only way you can actually grow it back, and, and I write about this in my book, is pomegranate juice has been shown to grow it, um, help, help the gut grow it, because it helps to restore the mucus lining. Cranberries seem to do it as well. Um, uh, and,
1: uh, uh, is it the mannose, is it the sugars in there or is it the polyphenols? I mean, I I use pomegranate polyphenols. Yeah, we think it's
2: the polyphenols actually. Yeah, Um, they're in my
1: polyphenomenal uh, formula because uh, there's all kinds of reasons to take pomegranate polyphenols, right? But the, the sugar in there is a bit. So, it's just super sweet.
2: Well, so that's what we need to know is figuring out what is the mechanism within yeah. the pomegranate for example because we can actually regrow that gut lining and have that healthy gut bacteria grow back. I mean, that could make the difference between life and death. So, here's another way, you know, that you know, this type of research that shows that the microbiome activated by, you know, polyphenols could actually help to activate the immune system in such a way that if you are facing the precipice of death and getting an immune therapy, it could make the difference between whether you make it or not.
1: Uh, I I love it. And it's it's really cutting edge that you mentioned that in your book. The only other guy who's on top of that is uh, Dr. Gundry, also mentions the same species as just being so important. And it's why, uh, polyphenols in general are really important. They're a big part of my headstrong recommendations even more so than Bulletproof Diet, and we know now broad spectrum's important. Uh, so getting lots of different ones, like I said, green tea's a great source, chocolate. Uh, of course, you and I both know what my favorite one would be, uh, which would be coffee. Uh, but there's, you know, every vegetable, every weird thing that grows that doesn't make you uh, have GI disturbances probably has polyphenols you wanted. Right, well coffee You did, however, very successfully, dodge naming a number. So 104 was your floor, Doctor Lee. <laughs> well, I would I would say if
2: 104 is my floor, I would at this time uh, at the end of the we recording this, I would give maybe 120.
1: I would say 120. That, all right, that'd be, so you that'd think be you're going to get some advantage over. This is your grandfather. My 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 great uncle. Yeah. Your great uncle. Yeah, so you're going to get some advantage over him from all the science that you're doing and all of your colleagues and and all that. It's, it's going to give you an advantage.
2: You know, I certainly hope so. And I think that, you know, I I, am somebody who navigates my life biohacking with the knowledge that I have. I mean, wherever I go, when I shop in the market, when I prepare my food, when I go out to eat, um, when I look at the menu, I mean, literally, it's kind of like, you know like what the Terminator showed on the screen, you know, like this kind of computer screen that goes up and lights up. I, I literally use the knowledge I have to try to make the most intelligent choices. And actually those choices change over time. Um, I want to have diversity in my diet, but I uh, but I want to make sure I'm avoiding uh, bad things and eating more good things. And then I follow the science. I follow what's coming out. I try to figure out what I can do. And of course, it's not just diet. You know, try to you got to get enough sleep. You got to have to stay physically active. You know, have good social networks. All those things are important. Um, I think it'll be really hard to replicate the relative, um, the sm- you know, the small village kind of small town field in rural mm-hmm. China at the base of a T mountain. But hey, you know, we all should be aspiring to that. And that's really this empowerment, using the knowledge to give us the power to be able to help ourselves
1: beautiful uh, dr uh, Dr. William Lee, thank you for writing your book, E to be Disease. It's got new stuff in there uh, that's worth people's time to read. Your website is dr william d r w i l l i a m l i And uh, I know you're giving away a bunch of stuff because you just wrote your book, so if people go to your website, they'll get all sorts of free downloads and all the all the good stuff that authors do these days. Uh, unless you're lazy like me, in which case you probably just had a PDF or something. But uh, you did a great job on that. And thanks for sharing this knowledge and just going out there as a, as a researcher. I understand that you know anytime you go out there and say food makes a difference, uh, you're, you're taking some professional risks there, but the science is behind you. And I think you're doing the right thing. So thank you.
2: Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to a fellow systems biology thinker.
1: All right. <laughs> Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. If you like today's show, you know what to do. Head on over to your favorite bookseller and pick up a copy of Eat to Be Disease. Uh, if that's something that you'd like to do, there is new learning for you in there. And if you like the book, and if you liked any of the things like Game Changers based on the show or Headstrong or anything, and you haven't had a chance to review it, if you go to the trouble of buying a book and reading it and you think it was a good book, tell us authors just by leaving a quick review. You'd be amazed what a difference it makes. So take the extra 20 seconds to express gratitude. And it is clinically shown that expressing gratitude makes you live longer. So uh, well, well, we're offering you the opportunity to be grateful for great books uh, to help you live longer. How's that for uh, twisting things around? Have a beautiful day.